chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Come on in for an evening of poems and stories about the American West. A land of legend, of romance, of friendship and courage. A motherload of remembrance. A true showcase of the Old West with the old cowboy, J.C. Holsey. Welcome, folks. Come on in and join the old cowboy in the Wild West Showdown. we got a great guest today, and we got some fantastic original country music. But right now, if you don't mind, I want to fuss a little bit. I was sitting in an eating establishment the other day waiting to meet some folks. I was remembering when on this very same spot there was one of the best barbecue places on the planet. Of course, that's just the old cowboy's opinion. What kind of eats are here now? Well, it's a Tex-Mex place, and I gotta admit, it ain't bad. But I'd rather have had a barbecue sandwich. As I was sitting there, I looked across the street at a gas station. I gotta call it a gas station, because ain't no such thing as a service station no more. There was a young couple trying to air up their tire at one of those automatic airing machines. Now, if you find you got a low tire, you might be out of luck, because if you're lucky enough to find one of those self-service places to get air, they're going to want a quarter or maybe even more because it's been a while since I've tried one of those. And maybe, just maybe, the machine will last long enough to air up your tar. Nothing like the old days when for that very same quarter you could sit in your car and let the attendant do everything for you. You could get a gallon of gas pumped into the tank for you. He'd check under the hood. And listen to this. He'd check the air in your tires. All of this for a quarter, believe it or not. I guess that's enough reminiscing right now, but but maybe not. I guess I wasn't done yet. I just remembered something else that's on my mind. My trusty old 2004 Dodge pickup has some oxidation on the roof, and it's turning to rust. I took it to the body shop to get an estimate. When the young man slid that paper across with the numbers on it, I thought I was going to hit the floor. Whatever happened to the Mako $79 paint job that I've seen advertised on TV? Yeah, at one time, you could get your whole car painted for $79. Now, to get just the roof on my truck painted, it's going to cost me $680. Now, in my way of figuring, that's a whole lot more than $79. I reckon me and my old truck's going to have to continue as is for a little while longer. Oh, I got one more thing here while I'm fussing. The buttons on the heat and air stop working. I can still get air, but I can't switch the heat to the floor like I needed in the wintertime. I know a little bit about this kind of stuff, because when I was a kid, my daddy owned a wrecking yard, and I worked on cars basically ever since I got out of diapers. And I figure it's a little vacuum hose. There's a little rubber hose that connects to the carburetor, and it connects to the back of the heater adjustments. You know what a dealer wants to fix that for me? Almost a thousand dollars. Again, I reckon me and my Dodge is going to leave things as they are. I just read on Facebook where somebody said country music is dead. I put a comment on there that you just need to know where to tune it in. And that's on the Wild West show that I agree it may be dead on the radio. It may be dead on the country music awards shows. But it's very much alive on the Wild West Showdown, and it'll continue to live with folks like our singers. Now, our singers may never be invited to the Grand Ole Opry. They may never be 
on the Country Music Awards show. But with the new technology and the internet, these talented folks share their love for country music with us every day. So please, please don't say country music is dead before checking out some or all of these extremely talented singers. Now let's listen to one of our talented singers right now. This is Jerry Webb singing I Love Texas Honky Tonks. My hat's off to the lady behind the bar And a man on a pedal steel guitar Those twin Texas fiddles they play When that telecaster talks I always feel this way A good old Texas shuffle And a crown roll I could hang around and dance every song A white star shirt and a well-creased hat Yeah, the girls still notice things like that Of the nation in a Texas dance hall where I'm two steps away from it all. So play your kind of music and leave mine alone. I love a Texas honky-tonk. Of the nation in a Texas dance hall, just two steps away from it all. So play your kind of music and leave mine alone. I love a Texas home tone. Now, folks, answer a question for me. After hearing that song, do you think country music is dead? Thanks so much, Jerry. That was a great song. How would you like to be a singer on the Wild West Showdown? I know how you can do that. Just like our singers on today's show, you can send an email to jc at outlawspublishing.com or jc at theoldcowboy.net. Let us know that you're a singer and you'd like for us to play your music on the show. We'd also like to have all you poets out there do the same thing. Send an email to jc at outlawspublishing.com or jc at theoldcowboy.net. 
let us know that you have some poetry. If you have some MP3s, that would be great. But the old cowboy will read them for you, and I'll do my dead-level best to make them shine. Now we're going to visit with our special guest. We want to welcome to the Wild West Showdown today a man of many talents, Dr. Harvey David Watts. Dr. Watts is an inventor, a poet, an author, and winner of many awards. Welcome, Dr. Watts. Thank you. Nice to be here. I understand you was born in Texas. Whereabouts in Texas? Well, I, I was a transplant to Texas who grew up in West Texas on a farm and was always very much a part of Texas. I grew up there and then went to medical school in Houston. Okay, so your dad was a doctor? He was a Ph.D. Okay. Uh, he was a, a religion and philosophy professor. Oh, okay. So how come you decided to not follow in his footsteps? You know, he was of a mind that everybody had to go their own path, and he provided what he could in the way of direction, which I think was a grand way to be a father. And then he just, like, you know, the birds in the nest, he pushed us out, and we took off in all directions. Yeah, well, that's very good advice, very good way to raise a child, I think. I thought so. Okay, and what field of medicine are you in? I'm a gastroenterologist, uh, but I also do internal medicine, and I have a practice here across the street from the University of California. Okay, and how long have you been doing that? Oh, my God, I've been there for about 30 years. All right. Medicine, yeah. Now, explain to this old cowboy what a practicing physician is. <laughs> <laughs> the word itself makes it sound like we haven't got it quite right yet. But the practice of medicine is an office where you see patients, you know, and... Yeah. Take care of people who are sick. All right. And you're also an inventor, I understand. Uh, well, I did. Uh, a few years ago, a couple of guys came up to me and wanted to know what kind of thing needed to be invented in the field of gastroenterology. They had just sold a, a cardiologic catheter company for a bunch of million dollars, and they had some money to put into some kind of investment. I gave them a couple of ideas, and they went off and checked them out with some friends of theirs and ended up building a company around it. The, the whole notion was that colonoscopy is one of those tests that gets done. That's what we do in gastroenterology. Yeah. Uh, to check to be sure you don't have anything that's likely to turn into a cancer. Uh -huh. So there's been evidence that some of those little polyps get missed. You know, they hide behind poles or they around the corner somewhere. So I invented a little scope that went down inside of the colonoscope, turned around and looked backwards so you could see on the back side of folds or up in corners. And we found another 20-30% more polyps doing that. And so it's now being produced by Avantis Medical Instruments Company in Sunnyvale. All right. Sounds like a very important deal. Well, and, I think it helps save a few lives. That's going to be uh, one of the best things that could happen. Yeah, and by the way, I'm very familiar with a colonoscopy. Above <laughs> <laughs> a certain age, a lot of us are. Yes, okay. Well, are you married? Do you have children? I am. I have a bunch of children, a bunch of grandchildren, and I'm married very happily. Thank you very much. Okay. Are you of the same idea of your, your dad telling them to go their yep. old way? Well, you know, it's one of the best things that can happen is that your children take one of your talents and do it better, and that seems to have happened all along the road in my family. Okay. I've got a doctor, a pediatrician who's practicing up in Vermont. I've got a professional violinist who is in Connecticut. I've got a registered nurse in uh, Oregon and an attorney over in Davis, California. So they've all, they've all done stuff. 
Okay. Do you have any regular <laughs> regular folks? <laughs> well, I'm, those are all professionals. You know what I mean by regular, don't you? Oh, yeah, but you know you got to keep that regular side, otherwise you lose your balance. That's but, true. How about your grandkids? Uh, well, you know, they've got, I've got a bunch of them, and they're scattered all over. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they play tennis. You know, they... They play basketball. I got a bunch of musicians. Uh, there's one family that has five folks in it that all play instruments and sing, and they travel around kind of like the Van Trapp family, you know, from mm-hmm. the music. Yeah, they they're all out there doing stuff. They're young yet, but they're getting a good start. Sure. Okay, you mentioned musicians. Are you a musician? Yeah, I started out as a music major. I, I played the French horn, and I played in an orchestra for a number of years. But about halfway through college, I looked around and decided that uh, if I was going to make a living playing the horn, I was going to have to wait around. To... And so I, I kind of liked science, and I liked people, and I synthesized together those, those two propensities and came up with medicine. Nobody in my family had ever been in medicine, but it, it fit me just right. And I can still play music on the side, which I do even today. Okay, great. What made you decide to toss your hat into the book business? I think a midlife crisis was what set that rolling. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, in the middle of a, of a acrimonious divorce and... Um, Things weren't going well. I thought I could handle everything, but I was beginning to lose weight and get kind of sickly. And, um, I, you know, it just wasn't turning out very well. And so instinctively, I felt like if I wrote some poems that I would be informed better about what was happening to me. And what I wrote was, you know, drivel. Uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't publish it anywhere, but... Um, the process of writing somehow was almost like psychotherapy. And you know, there's a fellow down at uh, at University of Texas, uh, James Pennebaker, who's done some work on this. And mm-hmm. he says, you know, if you write about a traumatic event in your life, and if you record the events of that traumatic event, and along with it, your emotional response, that there's a very favorable psychological result. Mm-hmm that you learn a little more, you get a little better perspective on what's happening and somehow putting it on a page and looking at it, it's different than thinking about it inside your head. And your health gets better, your outlook gets better, your mood elevates. And that's what I experienced. I didn't know about Peter Baker at the time that I was doing this, but um, that's what I experienced. And so I decided that if I was gonna be writing, I better know what I was doing a little better. So I went back to San Francisco State after I already, you know, graduated and was in practice of medicine and took some courses, ended up with a graduate degree, which I hadn't planned on in creative writing. And and that's then I started going to the Squaw Valley community of writers up in Lake Tahoe for a few summers, met some really great poets like Galway Cannell and Sharon Olds and folks like that who became friends of mine. And. You know, one thing led to another, and, uh, oh, yeah, the other thing about it is I was writing poetry for a while, but then I, I was listening to NPR and hearing the folks do commentary, and I said to myself in that, you know, typical Texas sort of way, well, hell, I can do that. So <laughs> I started writing those, and they liked them well enough to put them on air, and then that led to the book of uh, short stories about the practice of medicine called Bedside Manners. All right. And nope. that got it all started. 
a lot of a lot of authors that I talk to say that writing is very therapeutic. I believe it. Yes, I, and I do too because it it uh, has really helped me. Well, you mentioned you got kind of sickly. Uh, did you treat yourself or did you go to a doctor? Well, the dangerous doctor is the one who treats himself. So yes. I, um, I I saw help, but. There wasn't anything medically wrong with me. I was just having a lot of turmoil at right. the time. You've got a novel that you've written about a outside-the-box motorcycle-riding physician. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, do I hear a similarity between your main character and yourself? Well, I have to confess that almost all my characters have a little bit of me inside of them, that's for sure. Yes. Um, and I think every writer does that, even if they don't admit it. Sure, this guy is a little bit like me. He's from Texas. He's a little outside the box. I've always been outside the box. He rides a motorcycle, which I did maybe three times in my life, and I decided that was way too dangerous for this puppy. So I, I stopped doing that. But I sort of admire some of the characteristics of this particular character, and I put him in the What you do with a, a mystery novel is that you, you develop characters that you like, you pick a time and a place that's attractive or very interesting and has layers to it, and then you make something really bad happen. And when that when that occurs, you push this person outside of their level of comfort. Mm. That person is outside the level of comfort. He has to learn new rules of application, how things work in this arena that he's been tossed into. He has to decide who his friends are and who his enemies are, who he's going to pay attention to in terms of advice or information. And he has to confront something really important and big in his life. It could be an enemy. It could be something that he did in the past that he has to reconcile himself to. And so that's what happened in this novel. I started out to write it. I set up all these things that I just told you about, and then I let the novel write itself. Uh-huh. Because that's when, when you do that, and you don't know exactly where it's going to go, that's when you encounter the process of discovery, which to me is one of the best things about writing, is you discover stuff, you know. Yes, and it, it's so exciting to, to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I listened to you tell me all that stuff, and the thoughts going in my head was, man, that sounds like a lot of work. But, <laughs> but then you said the main thing, you let the, you let the story write itself, and that's... Oh, that, that is so exciting to do that. It was. And, you know, you get addicted to it, I have to tell you. <laughs> yes. You do. And if, if you're not doing it, you figure, oh, what could I be doing to get that feeling once again? Right. And you can win all sorts of awards, but the most important and most uh, pleasurable part of the whole process is when you put something on the page and you look at it and you say, Dang, that's really good. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> okay, how did you pick the title and the cover for your book? Well, I wanted to do something shocking. Uh-huh. Um, part of the encounters that this guy, Jack Barnstone, my, my main character, has involves a satanic church. Now, during 1967, which was the Summer of Love, and that's when this uh, whole book is set, there was a lot of stuff going on in San Francisco, some of it really interesting and some of it really bad. Uh, but they had these cults going on. The satanic church in this particular novel is not the source of the evil, but it's a conduit to some of the people who were the source of evil. 
And so what I did was to set that up as the Lucifer connection, uh-huh. connection through the church to the bad guys that were behind all of the bad happenings that were going on in San Francisco that involved Jack Barnstone, my main character. Because he gets involved in something that's much bigger than himself, that's huge. And like in every hero's journey, which is kind of what a mystery novel is like, every hero's journey, the protagonist encounters the enemy at some point in a, in a confrontation. Uh-huh. And that's the climax. And usually the hero is at a disadvantage because he doesn't have enough strength or power and in the old days, when they were writing heroes' journeys, they would have some deity come down and give him a magic sword, or they would give him a some sort of hidden power that he could use in times of crisis. In modern times, we don't go that direction very often, so we have to use other things like intelligence, uh, and that's what Barnstone uses. And I won't tell you all the details. All right give it away, but that's that's how he overcomes this crisis that he gets involved with. Okay. How do you handle your marketing? Do you have a plan, a publicist, or you just do it one day at a time? Well, it's a big mistake for anybody who's a writer to handle their own marketing because, you know, it's like anything else. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to spend a lot of time wasting time. Yes. So I have this guy, Nick Whale, who is really fantastic. He's out of London. Uh-huh. And he... Uh, He's not only a publisher, but he is a uh, he's a he's a marketer. Uh, he's a he's a publicity guy. Right. And he knows whether it's important to send out emails or whether it's important to do social media or whether you do the reviews. And so that gives the kind of perspective that's more likely to be associated with success. Are you working on anything right now? I've started on the second book because if the Lucifer connection takes off, which it looks like it might well do. Right. Besides, I didn't tell you that Hollywood has been kind of interested oh. in, in the Lucifer connection. Paramount Pictures liked it a lot. So what we're doing now is trying to build up that kind of a reputation for the book, and then maybe it, it will uh, take off as a movie. If it does that, then I'm going to be having to do a second or a third volume, which I've already started on. I've got about three chapters in the second book. That's great news. Yeah. Okay, you won many awards. You won the Best Doctor Award by the other doctors. You won a Patient's Choice Award and Most Compassionate Doctor. You just mentioned a Poetry Award. Let me me ask you this. These awards are great, and, and I know you feel good about getting them, but how did you feel how does a, an award measure up to seeing your name on the bottom of a book as the author? Oh, boy, that's a good question. I think that the main thing that authors want to do is to get a message out there that they think is, is important. And so that's probably the prime driver of any writer. At least it's a big part of what I do. But validation is also an important part of it. You don't want your your work to go out there and just sort of wilt or, or not be paid attention to at all or feel like it's a failure in some way. So when somebody gives you an award or in the practice of medicine, when somebody recognizes that you have compassion or that you are very good at, your, at what you do, then that validation figures into your level of self-satisfaction. I think part of what we try to do 
as human beings on this earth is to live not only uh, an examined life, a life we pay attention to, but one which gives you a sense of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So I think in so far as that is concerned, that these awards have really been a big help. When you decided you wanted to write a book, you went to school and, and to yeah. classes. Yeah. Now, I hear a lot of authors, and, and myself included, I think it's a God-given talent that we have. Now, how much of yours do you think is talent, or how much of it it was taught by these classes? I think it was Einstein that said that genius is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Mm-hmm. I think there's some truth in that. I think there are those folks who exist in the world that have a natural talent, and then there are those who work, 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 and work. And for most of us, I think it's a mixture. I've always thought that I might have a talent for writing because as I was a teenager, I was making observations about the psychology of my fellow teens and the interactions that took place. And when something happened that I didn't understand, I thought about it, like a girlfriend would jilt me or somebody would uh, win a football scholarship or something would stir up thoughts of observation. What made that happen? How did that take place? Is that uh, something that represents hard work or fairness or what? And my dad used to read poems to me and my mother would write some poems. And so I always had an exposure to literature growing up. I remember dad reading the Truman Capote stories of the Christmas memory, that one, that very famous one that he wrote. Uh, And it made me think, my God, I think that's an, such an important thing to have done, to be able to write a story like that, that makes people's hearts warm up and stirs the emotion and gives them something to think about that is human. So it's, I guess that's a long answer to a short question. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> that's fine. All right. If somebody came up to you and said, tell me how I can become an author, what would you say to them? Well, you have to have a passion for it, that's for sure. Yes. Part of that passion comes by doing it. And part of it comes by the sort of naive idea that you can do it. And then you have to be prepared to do some work. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of pitfalls for an author. You can become married to your work. And when you take it to somebody and show it to them and they criticize it, you can think, oh, my God, it's terrible. I'm never going to be a success. Or they don't understand. And they sort of people moan and groan about that. You have to get over that. You have to be able to have people criticize your work, and then you look at it and you say, now, is there truth in what they said, or do I have a different opinion? Mm-hmm. And you have to look at it as objectively as you can and then make changes if you need to along the way. Right after somebody's written something, they're really tied to it. Their ego is locked into it, and they're very vulnerable to criticism. But mm-hmm. it's important to set that aside. And if it takes putting it in a drawer for six months and looking at it again later, you look at it with different eyes when you do that. And you're able to see, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Or, oh, that's ridiculous. i got to get rid of that. And another, you know, another thing is if you're reading your own book and you go to sleep reading it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it might be, might be something to that. There might be something wrong. Okay. How can folks get in touch with you? You're on Facebook, Twitter. You mentioned LinkedIn, all these yeah, I'm on uh, Facebook. Uh, okay. I do have a Twitter account. There's a, a, a website that has my name on it, H. David Watts. I, I go by David, but the Harvey is there for that's my father's first name. So okay. All right. Do you mind giving out your email address if somebody no, wants? Fine, too. It's hdavidwatts at gmail.com. All right. 
Now, what was your favorite treat as a kid? Treat? You mean as in something to eat or Can, yeah, candy, cake, something like that. Ooh, well, I I collected baseball cards. Okay. So that was a treat for me to hang around Swinson's grocery store and wait for the next shipment. Yeah. That might contain a card that I didn't already have. So it was a combination of the of the bubble gum and the cards that was really magical. Okay, did you put any of those cards on your bicycle wheel? I did, but I didn't do many of them. I only put <laughs> duplicates because it really tore the dickens out of me. Yes, it did. All right, are you still a collector today? Well, you know, I had an unfortunate event happen with that, those cards. I had I had all the great people. I had the Yogi Bears and the Mickey Mantles and mm-hmm. the Carrillos and Leo DeRoches. I had all those guys, Larry Doby. But around... 30 years later or so, um, I moved them from a cigar box, which is what I had kept them in, and put them in these uh, these membranes, you know, that you put. Yes. And we had a housekeeper who had a drug habit, and while nobody was in the house, she stole them. Oh, boy. And so they're out there somewhere in somebody else's collection right now. Let's take a little break, and we'll come back and visit with you a little bit later. Okay. We're going to listen to Gwaine McCall singing one of her songs. This is called Yesterday's News.
another great song that proves that country music is not dead. It's very much alive. Thank you, Gwen. That was a fantastic song. Now let's visit some more with Dr. David Watts. Now let's switch gears a little bit. Yep. What can you tell me about practicing medicine in the Wild West, preferably the mid to late 1800s? Oh, my goodness. Well, there wasn't much that you'd recognize as medicine in these days. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of the medications, of course, were, hadn't even been invented. And they used a lot of things that they had just come upon by their intuition and their observation. Important in your medicine kit was going to be something like a good bottle of rum. They used rum to make people feel better. I don't think it did much to help the situation, but you get a bullet wound, they'd give you a big shot of rum. Uh-huh. And even if it didn't do much for the pain, it would give you a little bit of euphoria to take you out of the out of the basement. And they had castor oil, right? They <laughs> give that every springtime to purge and clean. Uh-huh. And they used it for a lot of things, but as, as it turns out, it's actually quite good for several things that happen in the gastrointestinal tract. Uh-huh. They had used some peppermint oil, which was very interesting. Peppermint has a a settling the stomach kind of effect, and it still can be used today in people who have what's called irritable bowel syndrome, where they get a little cramping or gas or bloating or have a little diarrhea, constipation, something like that. A little peppermint oil goes a long way sometimes to make that better. But then they had some, some, (laughs) some things they probably shouldn't have had, like strychnine, you know, that's basically a poison. Uh And they'd fool around with that sometimes, and... They got in trouble, but they had they had, the Wild West was a was a very difficult thing. Those folks had had a lot of trouble, and you think of the covered wagon and the caravans that moved west. They lost twenty thirty percent of their people on right. the west from various diseases like typhoid or smallpox, or even just a you know big attack of diarrhea would be enough to take some people down. Uh-huh. They faced a lot of stuff in those days. I think we don't have any idea of the difficulty they went through. So we can't hardly call it the good old days, can we? <laughs> I know. When, every time somebody talks about the good old days, you have to remind yourself how good the things are today. Exactly. How much training do you think a doctor had then? Oh, I think they just probably attached themselves to somebody else that called themselves a doctor and, and learned by watching. Okay. Robert Louis Stevenson was uh, one of those guys who did that and uh, became a doctor so-called, for a while, but then he forsook that for his writing career instead. Yeah. Okay, is it true that they sometimes took care of animals? I think there was a crossover. I mean, I think doctors and and veterinarians have a common background. Surgeons and haircutters have a common background. All right. Your butcher or your haircutter could have been a surgeon in those days. Okay, you mentioned them on the wagon train, uh, the causes of death. What was the? What do you think the main cause of death was in the 1800s? Well, I don't know, um, but there was because there were so many uh, yeah. that contributed to that problem. But they had to they had to think about nutrition. They had to think about exposure to the cold. Then they could be attacked by the Native Americans too. So it was, and there was no law in the West. So the people who had a gun pretty much decided what was happening. Uh-huh. A lot of gunslingers were around in those days and a lot of train robberies, so it was, a, it was a tough time. How long did folks live? You know, it's interesting. If you look way, way back, the, the life expectancy was 
somewhere around late 20s or early 30s, 30 uh -huh. years of age, maybe was a pretty good age to live. And as things have come along, sanitation was one of the big factors that increased longevity. And after that, vaccinations were the next big factor that increased longevity. Uh -huh. and, it's, and it's interesting to think about it, because if you look at how it is that human beings survive as long as they do, you wouldn't expect, just based upon physiology and heartbeat, the number, number of beats per minute, you would not expect humans to live beyond about 35 years of age. Because if the hummingbird, you know, with its rapid heartbeat, lasts for a short period of time, the mosquito and so forth, you can pretty well plot it so that the number of heartbeats per second is going to tell you how short or how long the life is going to be. Well, we've exceeded that by long term. Uh -huh. And part of it is what we've done in terms of sanitation and vaccinations, but part of it is not explainable. We have no idea why humans are able, and maybe it has to do with intelligence, maybe it has to do with a willful connection that if uh, we want to live for a long period of time, we somehow figured out a way to have the immune system work better for us or have our systems of aging delayed in some ways. If you look around now, some of the folks that are 75 or 80 years of age look like the folks when they were 40 years of age, 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. Uh -huh. I remember looking at my father, of course I was young and I thought everybody was old, but <laughs> uh, looking at my father and thinking he looked old when he was 45. Whereas people now don't look so old when even when they're 60 or 70 years of age sometimes. So there's some mystery left in that question. Yes. What can you tell me about the medicine show doctors, the traveling medicine shows? Well, <laughs> <laughs> They were, they were all about selling snake oil. Uh -huh. And, you know, they had some things in there that might do some good, but they had a lot of stuff they had no idea was going to help or not. And they would, you know, play music or do a little, little tap dance or move around with, with their wagons and their horses. And by the time you figured out that what you'd bought from them wasn't any good, they'd gone on to the next town. So it was a partially good and partially fake uh, kind of existence. Okay, do you think their concoctions actually cured anybody, or is it kind of like the sugar pill of today? Well, you know, they is a, it's complicated, but one part of it would certainly be the placebo effect. Uh -huh. If I give you a pill, and if I say to your face, this is a placebo, but if you take this, it's going to make you feel better. You can take it, and by golly, it will make you feel better, even if you know it's a placebo. Uh -huh. Because there's something about expectation, you know, that's why people, even if they don't need it, they want, they want the doctor to give them a pill because their expectation is that if they take a pill, they're going to get better. So there's some of that in there. There's some of whatever the, the pharmacological activity of the, of the main ingredient is that would have an effect upon that. But that's about as best as I can do on that. Okay. You mentioned them giving rum, you said. We see in the TV shows and the movies, but they used whiskey yeah. to calm a person. Did they use rum maybe more than whiskey, you're saying? Well, I do know uh, that rum was very prevalent. Okay. Uh, but I suppose they used whatever they had. So, But the, the idea to have something alcoholic calms the nerves, and alcohol basically is an anesthetic. Yes. And so if you take enough of it, you're going to get knocked out. So that's how they used it. They used it as a, as a as something less to relieve pain, although they talked about it. If you got drunk, completely it would relieve some pain, but it took a lot of it to do that. Okay. Well, it just made people feel better. 
All right, we also see in the movies and TV where the doctors, you very seldom see them, see them getting any money. They're always getting chickens or, or yeah. hogs. How, how do you think they survived? Well, they did pretty well, I think, because uh, if you were providing a service like trying to make people feel better, people were going to be grateful for that. They would bring them chicken or, or pies or what have you. Um, and I kind of like that idea. Uh-huh. Right. If I get a chicken or a pie, I'm happy. <laughs> okay. Uh, as an out-of-the-box physician yourself, would you have enjoyed being a doctor in the Wild West? Oh, I think so. I think there's something about the occupation that tries to make people feel better that's attractive uh, on its own, even if you didn't have much to work with. Yeah. Well, listen, we want to thank you for being a guest on the Wild West Showdown today. And I, and I want to give you an invitation to come back and visit with us any time. I'd be delighted to do so. Thanks so much. All right. We'll talk to you later then. Okay. I'm going to read a poem written by my older sister. She's no longer with us, and she's dearly missed. Juanita was a very talented person. In my opinion, she was born too soon into this world. Perhaps if she were living today, she'd be an author. She'd be an actress. I know she'd be somebody to be admired because of her talents. Yes, I said talents because she had many. I'm going to recite one of her poems now. I hope you enjoy it. My dad called me to his side when he lay on his deathbed. He handed me an envelope, and this is what he said. This envelope is my will, son. Read it after I'm gone. may not seem like much, but maybe it'll comfort you some. Next day I lay him to rest, a rest he's well earned. I opened his will to read, the tears in my eyes burned. On a table beside my bed, there's an old Bible, son. It's used and been well read. This is what I leave you. May not seem like much. Its pages beginning to fray. But just oil it with you, son. Why, it's good for many a day. Also, I leave you the love of God. That's worth more than gold. Then there's the hands of Jesus in your troubles you can hold. Many years have passed by since the day I read Dad's will. I wonder if somehow he knows I use that old Bible still. We want to give a special shout out to Wayne McCall and Jerry Webb for allowing us to share their music today on the Wild West Showdown. A very special thanks goes to Dr. David Watts for sharing with us today. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed doing this. Why don't you drop us an email telling us how much you enjoyed the show? Or maybe you've got a request. You'd like to hear about a particular subject? Or you'd like some special music? Send that email to jc at outlawspublishing.com or jc at theoldcowboy.net. We'll see if we can't help you out. Now holler at everybody and tell them to gather around. It's time for some good old cowboy wisdom. Timing has a whole lot to do with the outcome of a rain dance. This is the old cowboy J.C. Halsey saying adios and happy trails. Come on back next week to the Wild West Showdown with the old cowboy J.C. Halsey.